welcome everybody. It is great to see all of you here today. Looking forward to our time in the Word. I'm going to take a brief pause in our look at the life of David uh, for a couple of reasons. One, just because of um, the uh, nature of things going on, current events, uh, lots of questions going on about the subject of revival, so I thought it would be appropriate time to talk a little bit about that. And also, uh, chapter 17 of 2 Samuel is proving to be a challenge, so a little extra time in preparation so that uh, we approach that properly seem to be in order as well. So, with that in mind, if you would be so kind as to turn to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings, I'm going to read chapter 22 today. Now this whole account actually runs on through chapter 23. Uh, It is highly doubtful that we'll get that far, even though I have outlined the entire thing for you there in the bulletin. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get through 22 today, and that's uh, what we're going to aim for. If we get further, great. But I want to read 2 Kings chapter 22 today, uh, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read through the entire chapter. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, uh, uh, the the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David his father, And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of Yahweh, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of Yahweh, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of Yahweh for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam 
and Achbor and Shaphan and Asaiah went up to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, Shalom, excuse me, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, a keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Well, we live in heady times, do we not? If you've been paying any attention to the news uh, in the past couple of weeks, there is a fascination with revival that has swept the nation. It's really gripped the imaginations of many, even those uh, that are not uh, necessarily Christian in any way, shape, or form, just uh, the secular news outlets and all of that, or just fascinated with all that's been going on there at Asbury University, and, and even as it's spread to other places. Many are pointing to the phenomenon such as those prayer meetings there at Asbury University as being clear evidence of God's reviving hand at work. But is it? It's hard to know. Um, how will you set about to discern what really is happening there? Um, you read some reports, and some of the reports are, and usually it's in the media outlets, um, but uh, not, not, not limited to that, but uh, it's, while this is really incredible, God's really doing something, it's really wonderful, look at all that's going on. And then there are other reports, many that I've read, that um, would raise some red flags. That, um, um, an absence of the gospel, for example, and some other things like that. And you, you wonder, well, what, what's happening? Did it start off well and deter deteriorate and turn into a show? You know, what, what, it certainly got to be a bit of a circus, um, just for people wanting to go and see it, which is not really the definition of revival. But we're not there. How do we discern? And even more importantly, when things like this may happen in our midst, how do we discern what really is revival and what is just us getting stirred up and excited about stuff? Because there is a difference. Maybe it would be good to begin with uh, a definition. Now, uh, there's a, the word revival, or revive, is used in a number of places throughout the word. Uh, a good place is in Psalm 85.6. It's a 
easy, uh, easy verse to take a look at, which reads, Will you not, it's a prayer, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I mean, that's, this is something we desire, isn't it? We should desire to be revived. And the word revive there has the idea of, uh, of uh, to renew life um, or to preserve life. Now, it's a term, therefore, that specifically applies to God's people because you can't revive or preserve something that doesn't already exist. Right? If, if you're, a, you're not, you don't pray for revival for the lost, it doesn't work. You pray for salvation for the lost. You pray for revival for those professing believers who say, we're, we're Christ, but they're living like the world and they need to be renewed in their commitment to Christ. That's revival. Well, God's people have to be renewed in their fellowship with and their worship of their king. But we are not left without, without guidance on this. We, we don't need to wonder what the criteria are. We have clear biblical guidance in trying the spirits on this question. And in our text today, we see an example of these criteria lived out through the account of the reformation that King Josiah brought to uh, not only, I started to say the land of the kingdom of Judah, but really all of Judah and Israel, as we'll see as we go through this. In this account, you will see where revival originates, genuine revival originates, what it looks like, and what it produces. Because genuine revival produces genuine <clears throat> results. So let's begin in chapter 22. Verses 1 and 2 are the, it's very common when we read narratives um, of through the kings and so on that you'll get a verse or two that summarizes their reign in a nutshell, and then it's developed. So that's what we've got in verses 1 and 2. Just the summary, he was, when, he was, uh, uh, when, he began to, when Josiah began to reign, how many years he reigned there, who his, who his mother was, and the general characteristic of his reign was that he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh. And he walked in all the way of David. So we're not actually getting entirely away from David today. But he walked after uh, the pattern of David, uh, his forebear, in the presence of a holy God. But verses 3 through 7 seems to begin the account in a rather mundane way. He's repairing the temple. Now, this was necessary because the king who came before him, Manasseh, um, up until right at the end when God judged Manasseh pretty severely and Manasseh repented, Manasseh's reign was characterized by an incredible amount of paganism, idolatry, uh, immorality, corruption, just, in fact, every king after him was often compared to Manasseh, either good or bad. He, he either did worse than Manasseh or followed in the same steps as Manasseh and all the abominations that Manasseh brought and, and, or he did not walk according to uh, Manasseh, but 
uh, walked according to the principles that Yahweh had laid down for godly governance. Well, in any case, this does seem to be uh, just sort of some housekeeping, <laughs> literally. Um, the, the temple had fallen into disrepair. The Lord had been uh, ignored, sent off, uh, sent off to the side. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, see more of this sort of thing when we get into chapter 23, which again will probably be next week. But if you look earlier, you'll see there was a whole lot of syncretism going on, meaning that there was a blending of the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the gods of the nations around them. And so the temple had just fallen into disrepair. And Josiah, in his 18th year, and that's the 18th year of his reign, which is the normal way of expressing that. This is not when he's 18 years old. So he would be about 26 years old. Um, in the 18th year of his reign, he sets out to um, set things in order in the house of God. So let's think about, this is really though the beginning of, where, uh, of the revival. This is where it starts with Josiah. And it seems to be um, like not much of a beginning. It would be a, a much bigger scale, but uh, think of, uh, you know, as uh, Johanna cleans the church. It's kind of like, well, uh, it, why does she do that? Why does she care about that? And the deacon's taking care of the property. Why do we do that? It, it, it says something about what we're doing here. And it says something about who we are coming to meet here. So the fact that the temple had fallen into disrepair uh, says that there was a carelessness about the things of God that had come over the entire nation. And Josiah uh, thought, all right, it's time to uh, clean up and get this house in order. Um, as I walked through this, trying to think about the governing principle behind what Josiah was doing, it's not just a matter uh, of Josiah wanting to have a nice place to go worship. He recognized, I believe, that this house was the house where God had placed his name. Whether someone had, were not told, whether someone had had revealed that to him, reminded him of that, or whether he found it in his own studies. I don't think of his own studies because he hadn't read the book yet. So someone must have, have in, the, in the, the oral tradition that surrounded him, he knew this was Solomon's house. The story of how Solomon dedicated the temple and God's glory came and filled it and all of that. Surely, even in these fallen, corrupt times, somebody remembered that. But in any case... Uh, if you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, as Solomon has prayed and asked for the Lord to bless this house that he had built, we read in chapter 9 of 1 Kings chapter 3, Yahweh said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Something uh, as something that is, was of the Lord struck Josiah's mind. 
about the, the unacceptable condition of God's house. This place where God had said his name would be, that his, his eyes and his heart would be there for all time. If you, young people, I'll speak to you, and older people who were once young people, I'm sure you will relate to this. If you know that your mother and father are going to be looking at your room, is it cleaner or dirtier as a general rule? Generally, if you know you're going to be checked up on, generally speaking, if you're wise, you'll be working at cleaning it up. It's a similar kind of thought here. Josiah was aware that God was looking upon this house and God's people had trashed it. Including Manasseh had put idols in there. They had all kinds of stuff. It's just garbage in there. They had not as well as the physical upkeep. Josiah, I believe, is not just concerned with the house itself. He's concerned with the very witness of God that that house represented to the world. And it was a shame. It was a shambles. It was a shame to Israel. And it was a, a poor reflection on Israel's God. He, and the revival that comes out of this initial work um, begins with this concern for God's witness. He was concerned for the upkeep of the house. I mean, you look at the things that were going on there. He wanted um, uh, timber and quarried stone and all that that was to be there. Paying the workers well, taking the, the tithes and offerings that had been given from the people. Remember, they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they were worshiping everybody else too. But so they had money. It just hadn't been used. It just been sitting there. Hadn't been used for what it should have been used for. So he's concerned for the upkeep there, that there was a, a place where the glories of God could be reflected as fully as possible in that place. He had concern for the integrity of the place. And I don't mean structural integrity. I mean the way it was run. Did you notice? Now, it sounds like he's not too concerned about it because he says, don't keep records on how much on the money that you give. But he qualifies that and gives the reason why. Because I know that those workmen are trustworthy. They deal honestly. So we don't need to be concerned about that. We know they're going to use it well. Which, which says to me that he's done enough scrutiny to know that they will do it well. So there's a concern there to make sure, and even, just the fact, even the fact that he mentions it, saying, all right, we've addressed this, we understand that, we know where the money's going, there's integrity in the way that it's done. Think about how many, not just local churches, but Christian ministries in general in the past, several decades have gone down in flames often in, very publicly to the, the um, shame uh, of the church because of mismanaging money or, misman or, or, or the abuse of power or any number of other things where 
the integrity has not been there. Wasn't subject, they didn't allow themselves to be accountable. They didn't want to be answerable to anyone. Whether it's individual ministers that have gone down in flames that way or entire ministries, it's a, it's a problem that is pretty common because there's not enough concern for the integrity of the house. But Josiah begins here, he's, he's aware of their situation. He's, he's on top of this uh, financial aspect here. He's concerned about the integrity of God's house because that impacts the witness of God. The church of Jesus Christ is taking it on the chin um, over and over and over again because of the failures of those who are at its helm in the local settings. And that shouldn't surprise us. It should grieve us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because if we're not concerned about integrity, then there's a problem with witness of, of God as it goes out in the world. It doesn't change God, of course, but the perception is, yeah, um, I was telling somebody about this, and, it, and I don't remember exactly in what context, so if, if it was with some of you, my apologies for saying it again, but I remember many years ago uh, when I was uh, doing some choral uh, work in, uh, in Portland, walking up to rehearsal one night and seeing on the back of one of the cars of the, uh, one of the choir members, it was, it was a secular community-based thing, and on the back of it, uh, they had a bumper sticker that said, Lord, deliver me from your followers. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, there's some times when I feel that way myself. And sometimes I'm probably one of the followers that people wished they could be delivered from. Sometimes we do we don't we don't do our we do we do not honor our king because we're careless. Josiah wasn't being careless. He was trying to deal with something just on the on a on a level here that again it seems pretty mundane. It's kind of in a sense it's every day. It's not like this great spiritual theological debate that he kicks in. It's just fixing up the temple. But he was motivated for the honor of his God. He was concerned for its uh, upkeep. He was concerned for its integrity. And, and kind of an outgrowth of those two things would be that his concern ultimately was for its readiness, its ability to be used and used properly. If you look at verse 2, the summary statement of doing what is right in the eyes of Yahweh, walking in all the way of David his father, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. While this is a summary statement, um, remember that this particular account about the temple is, is 18 years into his reign. He has not yet read the book of the law. That doesn't happen until verse 8 where the book of the law is found and brings it to the king. And it's brought to the king. So up to then, up to 18 years, he'd had a pattern of, at least within the confines of what he knew and understood, he was striving to walk in a way that was with all his heart towards his God. And yet he was doing 
he and the rest of the nation were doing things wrong and things needed to be rep- needed to be fixed but he has this he has this readiness of heart to want to please his god that was evident even before so when you put all of this together i was thinking all right how does this how does this constitute the beginning of revival cleaning up god's house doing the repairs what is involved there josiah understood i believe that the temple was the place where god had said he would dwell this is where his name was this is the testimony that he had before the world there in the midst of his people israel and he the holy god had been ignored had been rebelled against had been defied had been had his name drugged through the mud because of god's sins in other words god's holiness had been offended because of what of how they had treated the temple Stephen on that basic level they just had not acted like God was really there. They'd been like a child with a dirty room and said, I don't care what mom and dad says, I'm going to live my whatever way I want. Oh yeah, I'm in the house. Yeah, hi mom and dad, you're my mom and dad, but I'm going to do whatever I want. And that uh, had been characteristic of Israel. So what's the bottom line here? How does revival come out of that? Well, it revival starts with grief over offending a holy God. And that makes it personal. That takes it out of just, you know, adding janitor to your to-do list. To clean up things externally. A holy God had been offended. And Josiah knew it had to change. He started with the low-hanging fruit, the most obvious thing. Clean up the temple. And then it just went from there because what happened then as he as they cleaned up the temple, they found something. You know, I think sometimes when we pray for revival, we we have in mind what that revival should look like and how we want it to start. And I think this is one reason why the world gets so enamored when you get thousands of people coming and everybody's excited and you got loud music or even soft music or whatever, but everybody's all stirred up and this sounds really great. And that's we, Somehow we just have this idea, perhaps coming out of our American history tradition of the First and Second Great Awakenings and some of the, the public meetings and all those kinds of things that were there often characterized by complete theological error, but nonetheless it was exciting. But we, that's kind of in our American traditions. And so we tend to think that that's, that's what revival is. And, and when we pray for revival, we're looking for the Holy Ghost to come down and get us excited. And we ignore the things that we should be doing on a daily basis to honor our King. Josiah starts with doing the what should have been done. The basics. In a way, yes, Solomon's temple is glorious, but in a sense, you know, carpentry and woodworking, uh, 
laboring with their hands, getting their hands dirty, doing the basic stuff to put things right. And in that process then, as, as we go about seeking to please the Lord in those basic mundane things, then he reveals things to us to help us know how to take it further and, and truly bring glory to his name. So that's where we come here, beginning at verse 8, and this runs on down through the end of the chapter. Um, I'm just going to get into this a little bit uh, because of the time already. Um, this may be more than two weeks, and that's okay. Hilkiah the high priest says to Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And it's very interesting as you look through this, kind of how this happens. I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into the, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the conviction that this brings, God willing, next week. So here's Hilkiah. Here, here's Hilkiah. Um, these guys have been used to... Um, Guys like Manasseh, who didn't want to hear any of this stuff. They're digging around. They're finding the, where the money has been put and digging around on a, on a shelf or in a room. They run across a scroll. Now, whether this was a full Torah scroll, which it could have been, or perhaps a scroll just of the book of Deuteronomy, we're not told. The book of the law would cover either of those options. It's very possible that it could be... Uh, uh, an entire Torah scroll. Um, though it would be a really long reading that Shaphan did if he had done that. I, I rather think it's probably just the book of Deuteronomy, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, he, they find this scroll, and the high priest takes it to Josiah's secretary, his, his administrative assistant. And the secretary, instead of handing it off to David immediately, reads it first. Now, he, it does not say that Shaphan had, had any particular re reaction. But his actions speak really loudly. Because what does he do? He reads it. Um, and then he comes to the king. We've got this little gap. He reads it, and then he comes to the king, and he reports to the king and talks about all the money stuff. And then he says, oh, and we found a book, by the way. I'm guessing, and I feel really pretty confident about this guess, that Shaphan read that and basically it took, it sucked every bit of air out of him. It was like a gut punch. Whew. Whoa. How do I take this to the king? We were just instructed to go take care of the money thing. But now this, this blows the lid off. Shaphan reads it, and to his credit, does not just go tuck it back on the shelf. He does, he does this report. We did what, we told, what you told us to do. You can almost see him taking a deep breath and swallowing hard. 
but here's this book. And then he reads it to him. Picture that scene. That had to be incredibly powerful. You could hear a pin drop as it was read. Because not only did Shaphan, as he read it, when it was read in Josiah's hearing, and presumably others who were there, when those things were read, they knew, they knew that they were in trouble. They knew that they were subject to judgment. You know, when we start off, and we'll just kind of wrap up with this thought. When we start off just doing basic obedience stuff, being aware that our God requires our service, requires our devotion, and we come to understand <clears throat> that we haven't been giving it, even on the most basic levels, it's a time to get busy on those basic levels and do those things that God has called us to do. And then along the way, when His Spirit comes and through His Word says, all right, good job, now let's talk about the really serious stuff. That we have a heart of readiness to receive it, even when it's hard. Genuine revival starts that way. False revivals are not really concerned about an offended God. They're more concerned about how we feel and how well, we want, we're still think about God and we want Him to be happy with us. But it really tends to be more man-centered than God-centered. There's nothing here except the, the only man-oriented uh, emotion that is expressed in these passages is what? Fear. Fear in the presence of a holy God. If, if a movement, however exciting, begins and it's not really concerned about repentance before God, but it's more about repentance even before others or just uh, uh, wanting to feel at peace, those kinds of things, those are laudable goals to fix relationships between people and to live a peaceful, joyful life and to feel content that God uh, loves us. But it needs to begin with a sense of, of holiness that he possesses, that we have offended. Ultimately, that's at the root of our salvation, is it not? Because we've broken God's law. His, his character, his heart has been grieved. And the only way that that can be fixed is by someone actually restoring things to holiness and recognizing that holiness. And Jesus Christ has done that on the cross. And we're hidden in him if we are trusting in that work. But it has to start there. If we don't, uh, if we pay no attention to that aspect of it, then we really don't understand salvation. Much less revival. So this is a pretty... <laughs> these opening verses here, while they seem pretty mundane, they're not. Because they speak to this deeper truth. 
of a recognition of, a, of an offended God and needing to take steps, any steps, to begin to rectify that by His grace. As, as we continue to look through this whole idea of revival in the next week or so, um, let's keep this in mind. Let's seriously come before the Lord and ask, according to what you revealed to us, Lord, how have we offended you? What are we hiding in? Are we, are we hiding in uh, um, just busy work to get things done, even though things... I'm not saying that this shouldn't have been done with the temple, but there's, notice there's not, though Josiah is concerned with it, there's the, we don't see the grief yet. We don't see the fear yet. We, we still see just a little bit, though Josiah is serving the Lord, wants to serve the Lord, it's still kind of an external thing. But it's going to get a lot more internal really fast. And we're going to look at that, God willing, next week. So with that, I think we'll close here at this point and uh, go to the Lord in prayer, please. Thank you, Father, that you reveal to yourself to us in your word. We thank you for the example of King Josiah who just thought it was necessary to bring honor to your name by cleaning up your house. Lord, whether he, how deeply he thought through that, we don't know. But he does seem to have recognized that you, a holy God who had placed your name there in that house, had not been honored. Lord, let us be eager to honor you, even in the mundane things of our service and life before you and among one another. Lord, let us truly be concerned for the upkeep and integrity of your people and be concerned for our own readiness to come into your presence. But Lord, let it not stop there. We ask that you would stir up our hearts as we attend to your word and really get an understanding of the offense of our sins in your presence. And help us, Lord, to take, uh, by your Spirit's guidance, take these things to heart and turn them into not just window dressing activities, but genuine change and reviving of our life and communion with you. In Christ's name we pray.